Ah, yes, the three amigos. How that movie did not win Best Picture in 1987 is beyond me. But I'm sure you'd agree that's a very silly way to start a sermon. I appreciated last week how our representative from Gideon's remarked at what a fun church we are, but I don't only show you that clip because it's fun. I show you that scene because it's remarkably similar to what we'll read in a few moments in the Psalms. And even if we've never ridden on horseback through the dry and desolate desert with nothing but sand in our canteen, we all know how it feels to be in need, don't we? We all know how it feels to deeply desire something that we don't have. We all know what that's like. Perhaps we deeply desire a material thing, um, a new car, uh, a house, new patio furniture. Anybody desire new patio furniture? That's my deep desire this morning, and I'll tell you why. This is true. <laughs> Last night, I was leaning back in a, one of those rocking patio chairs after dinner, and I, I kid you not, I said to Cassie, does it seem like this chair is leaning back further than it used to? And about two and a half seconds later, I fell to the ground. <laughs> Apparently, I shouldn't have had that second hot dog. Yeah. Now, maybe we don't desire a material thing. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's an epic vacation. Maybe we desire a relationship with a particular person, and we're not sure whether they notice us. We all desire something, though, don't we? We know what it feels like to deeply desire, and we know what it feels like when someone else has the thing that we most want. Like Steve Martin and Martin Short's characters when Chevy Chase is just guzzling and gargling the water and then tossing it on the desert floor. We know what it's like when we deeply desire a thing and someone else has the thing. And we also know, we also know what it feels like to be unable to ask for the thing that we deeply desire. To be unable to give voice to that thing that we desire within us. All three of those things happen in that very short clip. There is a deep desire, then perhaps an even deeper envy, and then an inability to ask for what they most want. And Chevy Chase's character thinks they want his lip balm, right? Now we know we are desiring creatures. There are not only things we need, but there are things that we want. We see it in the earliest pages of the scriptures, where the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, right? In other words, it tasted good, it looked good, and it was beneficial. Even in the garden, there is this deep desire for things. It's part of what it means to be human, to deeply desire things. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John are a question. He turns to those who would become his disciples and he says, What do you want? Which we are so rarely asked unless we're placing an order at a restaurant. But that's how Jesus starts his ministry. What do you desire? Jesus gets right to the point. Jesus doesn't ask, how is your day, or how do you feel, or what do you know? Jesus doesn't even ask, what do you believe? Jesus asks, what do you want? And in a way, Jesus is echoing that earliest interaction of Adam and Eve, who deeply desired that fruit, who thought it looked good and it would taste good and be beneficial. See, in Jesus, we are revealed a God who is interested in what we want. Have you ever thought about that? 
That's his first question to us. I've shared before, one of my favorite authors says that this question of Jesus is the first and the last and the most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. What do you want is the question buried almost under almost every other question that Jesus asks us. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting rather than knowing and believing. Now, this is strange to us because we live in a culture that's been so formed by enlightenment and rationalistic thinking. Remember Descartes? He said, I think, therefore I am. And so we think that our thinking is the most important thing. But perhaps we aren't so much thinking beings as we're desiring beings. That our wants and our desires form us in a particular way. Um, The great St. Augustine once put it this way. He said, the whole life of the Christian." The whole life of the Christian is a holy longing. That is our life, to be trained by longing. This morning we're continuing our summer series in the Psalms. We're engaging the words of David in Psalm 63. As he writes these words in Psalm 63, David is on the run. And we don't know from who. There's probably one of two options. Either he's on the run from King Saul, uh, who was envious of David as a young and -and up-and-coming leader. Or he's envious, or excuse me, or he's on the run from Absalom, his third son, who rebelled against him as a result of his later failures in leadership. He's on the run in one of two ways. Hear what David says in Psalm 63. Hear his prayer, and and within his prayer, hear what he wants. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Oh God, we give you thanks for the Psalms, for this prayer book, for this hymn book, right at the center of the scriptures, that through these words we might not only be informed and instructed, but that we might be inspired to learn how to pray, to learn how to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, all flesh is like the grass of the field. All our faithfulness is like the flowers of the field, which withers and falls. But your word, O God, endures forever. So we commit ourselves now to your living word, Jesus, to your written word, the Holy Scriptures, and to your preached word. God, that you might meet each of us at our point of need. And in our deepest desires that only you can fulfill, It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
So it's at one time or another, David is on the run, whether from Saul or Absalom, whether the one who preceded him or the one who sought to succeed him. He's wandering in the wilderness away from the privileges of the palace, from the comforts of the kingdom. And instead, he's in a dry and desolate desert, not unlike that scene in The Three Amigos. And so it makes sense that his language echoes his experience, right? David says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. That phrase, my whole being, is often translated as either soul or or flesh. Um, The Hebrew word for it is nefesh. Let me hear you say nefesh. Nefesh, yeah, nefesh is a fun word. Um, That's the word that's used in the creation accounts. When God fashions the very first humans, it's the word nefesh. He put together their nefesh. Now, in Hebrew, the root word of nefesh means throat, which sounds very strange to us at first until we think about our relationship to God. Think about it. God creates... Thinking, walking, talking, desiring throats. Empty shoots in constant need of filling, right? Some of us fill more than we should and end up breaking patio furniture. See, within the etymology of our name, within the word nefesh, within the word human beings, is this reminder that we are empty shoots, we are throats, We are in constant need, dependent upon food and air and water. Just go for a little while without any of those three things and tell me how that works out for you. See, we are forever dependent upon things outside of us to sustain the life inside of us. And I don't know about you, but I think we often forget that. How easily we try to go our own way and to attempt independence, not from food or water or air, of course, but how often do we attempt independence from God, from the source of all those things outside of us that sustain the life inside of us? See, in a way, that's what happens with Adam and Eve in the garden when they raid the tree. That's the site of their desire that has gone awry. They reject their role as nefesh, dependent upon a creator. They want to do their own thing. They want to go their own way. They want not dependence on God, but independence from God. And so desire becomes disordered. Desire becomes disintegrated. Instead of being trained by their longing for fulfillment in God... They try to cut corners to meet their desires without the divine presence. Perhaps it's for that reason, in the very earliest centuries of the church, this psalm, Psalm 63, was sung every morning. Later, the church fathers said, this psalm should be sung, should be meditated upon every day. And so, I wonder, what did the early church know? What did those church fathers know that we might have forgotten, that we might miss? Now, early in the pandemic, um, when we were all still working from home and the kids were Zoom schooling from home, anybody remember those days? Yeah, and we don't really want to, right? But um, I'll tell you one thing I miss about them. I really miss having like a button-up shirt here 
but then being able to wear sweatpants the rest of the day. Wasn't that great? <laughs> Nobody knew. But there was very little to do, you know, out in the world. Cass and I started to realize something about our kids that we'd never noticed before. We started to realize how big and how bright our kids' eyes lit up when they saw the Amazon Prime truck. <laughs> Their little eyes would grow and glow with greed, right? And this is true. At one point in April 2020, um, they'd been inside so much, and they weren't getting any exercise except on a trampoline, which usually turns into a wrestling match. So we tried to get them to um, chase that truck around the block on their scooters. This was, uh, this was physical education during the pandemic. Even though I am well aware what Jesus says about chasing after the things of this world instead of seeking the kingdom of God. You can see the, the prime truck up there on the right. I think they beat it around the block. It had so many deliveries. Now, of course, my kids didn't think of the Amazon prime truck as an example of their independence from God. But the more I thought about it, the more I wonder if that's worthy of consideration and of questioning for ourselves. I wonder whether all the things that are so incredibly convenient for us help us kind of declare our independence from God. To kind of repeat the same mistake of Adam and Eve in the garden to push away on being nefesh, in constant need of fulfillment, dependent upon something outside of us for the life within us. Declaring our independence from God because something else has met our deepest desires. Now, ever since the Puritans, those outside of the Christian faith, have criticized the church's teaching on desire. Um, people outside of the church have said the church is um, repressive and regressive, and Christ's call to us is just a sort of repressive thing, and, and, and we, need not, uh, we need not heed it. And it's true that when Christ calls us, that we are to take on spiritual disciplines. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it this way. He said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. But let's not forget that that denial isn't meant to remove or repress our desire. Instead, it's meant to form our desire. To form our desire. And that's what David is getting at here. That's what he's getting at in Psalm 63. When he talks about being out in the wilderness, wandering away from the temple, away from the sanctuary. That's what David is getting at here. Now remember, many of the Psalms were written in what's called chiastic structure. The earliest lines correspond to the latest lines and then all the way down. And the meaning is found in the middle of the Psalm. Remember that. So um, early on, the dry and parched land we read about at the beginning of the Psalm, that corresponds to those who will go down to the depths of the earth. When David talks about lifting my hands to God, that points forward to God lifting David up in his right hand. But just like all those other chiastic psalms, the meaning is in the middle. David writes, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Notice, David recognizes a deep desire when he is in the desert. He recognizes those who have the fulfillment of that desire, who are at home in the sanctuary, who can attend at the temple. 
but it doesn't keep him from saying out loud the thing that he most wants. And so his disordered desire becomes reordered. A disintegrated desire becomes reintegrated. David thinks back to the sanctuary, much like we longed for around the time my kids were chasing the Amazon Prime truck around the block. Remember how it felt when we were unable to gather here in worship? When we were unable to be here in person? Do you remember how that felt? And how we longed to be together. We longed to be in this place. But notice, David is not just longing for the sanctuary. He's longing for what he learned in the sanctuary. He's longing for what he loved in the sanctuary. When we were away from this place, what was it that we most missed? Was it just this place? Was it just the people? Was it the various programs? Or did our holy longing form in us a deep desire for something more? For the power and the presence of God. You see, our times together, even now in the sanctuary, are meant to form us for the times when we're out of the sanctuary. Perhaps we could say that David's high point in the sanctuary trained him for the hard times out in the desert. It's in those high points that he was training for those hard times. It's in those high points, the times when we're together here in the sanctuary, that train us for the hard times and for the holy longing that the sanctuary can't satisfy, that the richest foods can't fulfill, but that are met only by the God of goodness and grace. I especially appreciate how C.S. Lewis speaks about desire. And he does it in a number of different books, in a number of different places. And I love how it pushes back on that criticism from outside the church that we're just puritanical, that we're all about regression and repression. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex, and foolish ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. And how true that is. That we are far too easily pleased, and we live in a culture that is hell-bent on fulfilling all of those lower desires and missing out on the infinite joy that is offered in Jesus alone. See, not long after asking that question, what do you want, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was traveling with his disciples And he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And and if you know anything about the geography of the region, you know that between the two, between Galilee and Judea, is a land called Samaria, but it's some place that no self-respecting Jew would go, except Jesus. Jesus intentionally walks right through the middle of Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, and and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sits down by the well, and it's the sixth hour, it's noon, it's the middle of the day, 
the highest, hottest time of the day. If you know the story, you've heard it before, it's there that Jesus meets a Samaritan woman who comes to draw water. And just like no self-respecting Jew would walk through Samaria, no self-respecting Samaritan woman would go to the well to draw water alone, and yet here she is alone. The story she tells is one of deep desire, like all of us, and a desire that was sought to be fulfilled in relationships. And as they talk, it becomes clear that none of those relationships have quite fulfilled the deepest desires of her heart. So Jesus engages this woman in conversation, engages those deepest desires, and he asks her for a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John explains to us, in case we miss it, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come in them, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, when we drink of the living water that only Jesus can give, it's not whether we're in the high points or in those hard times, whether we're in the sanctuary or we're in a dry and desolate land when we drink of that water that gives everlasting life, we can become that place that nourishes the thirst not only of ourselves, but those around us. We too come and and live through our lives with a deep desire, a desire that we seek to fulfill in many different ways. David wants us to learn, Jesus wants us to learn that those deepest desires are only fulfilled in him. They are what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea when we're so content with mud pies in the slum. We too will at some point or another be like those three amigos in that very silly scene that started our sermon. We will be like them at one time or another. Perhaps not riding a horse through the desert, but we too will experience both high points and hard times. But may we drink of that water that gives everlasting life. Not only that our thirst might be quenched, but that might quench the thirst of those who are with us. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for Psalm 63, for what it teaches us. And we ask that you would draw us back to it in the days ahead. That we would echo the prayers and the praise of that early church, of those church fathers who thought we needed to be echoing this every day that we might not be lulled into some crazy idea of our own independence, but that we would echo these words, that you, God, are our God, that earnestly we would seek you, earnestly we would search for you, we would thirst for you, that in a world that promises to fulfill all our deepest desires, our whole being longs for you, that you are the only fulfillment of those deepest needs. God, we give you thanks for Jesus, who does not go around us, but comes right to us, who is not afraid to engage those deepest desires of our hearts, who's not ashamed to invite us to admit the ways we've sought fulfillment elsewhere. 
We ask that you would give us the boldness to be so honest and authentic and open with this Jesus and with those around us, that we might be honest about those deepest desires of our hearts and that we might see that only you can fulfill them. We pray it all in the name of Jesus and for his sake, that we might drink of that water that brings everlasting life and that we might be that well that overflows with your goodness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.